Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, the G20 meeting in Indonesia. We'll talk about the U.S. midterm elections, and then we'll talk about Italy getting tough on immigration. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, the Dallas Air Show, uh, that's in Texas, there was a mid air crash between the planes that have left six dead. So, uh, hearts go out to all the families affected by that in America. We have the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, accusing the U.S. of trying to militarize Southeast Asia with the specific intent of containing Chinese and Russian interests. Now, we are. <laughs> we are. So, it's not exactly like that's a false statement, but, you know, the truth hurts more than anything else. So, he said this now, uh, right on the heels, well, actually, no, not right on the heels, right on the eve, actually, of the G20 summit, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Excuse me if I sound off, I'm coming down with something, so, of course, I've decided to get into a race against time to finish the podcast before whatever it is hits. I'm going to have me a really good nap after the episode. But we have that happening in Southeast Asia. And it's true. You know, let's keep it 150 here. It's true. That's exactly what the United States is trying to do. Look at, look at the Quad. Look at the U.S. guarantees to Taiwan. Look at U.S. drills with South Korea. It's all an attempt at trying to contain... China, and by proxy, contain Russia. So, that's what's going on here. The Russian foreign minister is now openly accusing the U.S. of doing this. And the U.S. is offended. <laughs> but, eh, not too much coming out of there, other than just a public recognition among high-ranking officials of what's going on. And we'll see if it has any effect on the actions taken. You know, even though it's already happening. But in other news, we have the Ukrainian forces retaking the city of Kherson, uh, which does raise some questions, uh, namely surrounding Russia's annexation of this region. I mean, they literally just annexed this region a couple months ago, and they said that it was permanently integrated into Russia, and that they were going to be Russian forever. So when you make statements like that, Naturally, the expectation is that you're going to use your military to defend this territory. So why then are the Ukrainians advancing here? There was a buildup of troops in the region, and then the Ukrainians, they made their push. And they took the city. The Russians withdrew. And again, it raises some questions. I mean, what's Russia doing? It, uh, I've, I've accepted that it is beyond me to predict what they're going to do. I have learned my lesson thoroughly. But I, I am curious as to what exactly it is they're trying to do. It'll be very interesting to reflect on the ups and downs of this war uh, when it's over. But 
you would think that declaring an annexation of this territory and going through the whole ceremonial process, going through the whole legal process, and really making a big deal about this, especially in the wording he used in the speech, you would think that Russian troops, if they were going to defend anywhere, it would be in the regions that you just annexed. So why then are you still losing this territory? Why are you withdrawing in the face of Ukrainian attacks? Where's the Russian Air Force? Where's their missiles? They've been bombarding the civilian infrastructure. Certainly they have enough missiles to spare for masses of military, uh, masses of troops. So what exactly is Russia up to? I mean, they have, as of now, around 90,000 of those 300,000 um, reservists that they mobilized. Almost 100,000 of them, perhaps 100,000 by now, have made their way into Ukraine. They're about a third of the way done based on the information we have now. So with those extra numbers, how is it that you're being pushed back in this area you were fully capable of defending just a few months ago? I mean, I talked about it on the podcast, the Kherson Offensive. We waited all summer for it. It finally happened. It died immediately. And then they made gains over towards Kharkov in that sort of took the oxygen out of the room for the Kherson Offensive, and people stopped paying attention to it. But the Kherson Offensive was stopped dead in its tracks, with fewer troops in the field. So why now is Russia struggling to hold this same piece of land? It doesn't make sense to me. They inflicted devastating losses the first time this area was attacked, so clearly their defense worked. Why is it... Why are they pulling back now? It's just uh, really, really simple yet unanswered questions regarding this. Now, the people who think that Russia was always losing have been given fuel for their flame and saying that, see, Ukraine is winning. Uh, they've won a, a single battle. And it looks that way. I'll admit, it really does look that way. Just judging from Russia's continuous withdrawals. Now, I would assume that these withdrawals are consolidating their line at some point, and they'll be able to mount a strong defense across the the entirety of their line. But again, they were able to defend this area just fine a few months ago. Now they have more men, more material. How are they failing now when they were successful before it? It just doesn't make sense to me. Perhaps in the end we'll understand everything when we have the full context from the entirety of the war and not just trying to analyze things as they are in the moment. But that that's really interesting question for me. I'm very curious as to what it, the answer is. Like, what is Russia doing? And again, it's beyond me to predict what they're going to do. I know I, I talk a big game about this Russian winter offensive, but goodness, uh, I'll, I'll, I imagine I'm going to look so goofy if we get, to, <laughs> we get to February and they do literally nothing until the spring. I'm the, I'll just have to take that L. I'll just have to take that L. But... That's what I think is going to happen. But with this, I'm not entirely sure anymore. Are they feigning weakness when they're actually strong? Or are they actually struggling a little bit? I don't know. I don't know. And uh, I just, I just, I'm just very curious as to what in tarnation is going on here. And honestly, I, I mean, I'm just eager for a conclusion to this conflict. I want to know how it ends, you know. But uh, I'm being teased so badly by the Russians who are, oh, we're, we're mobilizing 300,000 troops 
Oh, look at that. We just lost some territory. Oh, look at where we have these missiles raining down on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. We're getting serious. Oh, we just lost Kherson. What, what are you you're playing with my emotions? <laughs> but it is a good thing for the Ukrainians, at least. So we'll see if this gets them some more aid, especially with the midterm results in America, which aren't quite what you probably were expecting. Certainly not what I was, at least not completely anyway. But that's Kherson. It has now fallen back into the hands of the Ukrainians. And we will see what happens moving forward. And hopefully those questions get answered. Uh, but before we move on from Ukraine, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has also begun signaling that he is open to peace negotiations again. So he's taking advantage of the, the good PR that comes from taking the city back to try to negotiate from at least a perceived position of strength. I say perceived because, you know, when the Russians choose to defend, the, the Ukrainians can't really do much against them. When the Russians choose to push, the Ukrainians have serious issues stopping it. But the Ukrainians are able to make these great gains when the Russians choose to withdraw. The Russians have them outgunned in artillery. The Russian Air Force is non-existent. And the Russians are pounding them with missiles. So... I do not believe that Ukraine and Zelensky are in a position of strength. But for the purpose of the negotiations, you can take advantage of the good PR. And, you know, we, we just retook our city. We're ready to, we're ready for peace talks. This major victory for them. And it wasn't even that big of a, like, a shootout. It's just they, they took the city because the Russians were through. So now they're saying, hey, we're ready for peace. Now, will the Russians be the ones who deny the peace negotiations instead of the being the other way around instead of the russians offering terms and the ukrainians rejecting it is it going to be the ukrainians offering peace terms and russian rejects it flipping the the tables on them uh, in this brief moment when they're going to be able to do that lots of lots of jostling going around very interesting uh in other news we have tigray and ethiopia f signing a formal deal on their roadmap towards peace with a mutual disarmament beginning on the 15th, so tomorrow. They should begin disarming, and hopefully we will see the end of this conflict, although the disarmament's going to take a little while, so hopefully no one shoots at each other while this is going down. But it looks like the Ethiopian Civil War is finally coming to a conclusion. I, w I was skeptical. I was skeptical, especially after that... That first ceasefire where it was basically a unilateral declaration from the federal government saying that they were that they were in a ceasefire without the Tigrayans even acknowledging that and the fighting just continued for months. Then there was the second ceasefire, which was brokered by the UN, and it was broken very quickly after by I would suppose bad actors on both sides who were shooting at each other. But now that same agreement is coming into force, the one brokered by the African Union. It seems like they are settled in on that piece, and there have been genuine efforts made by both the Tigrayan and Ethiopian governments to make this piece a reality. So we'll see what comes of this. And, again, it's a good thing that civil war is ending. Libyans and Syrians everywhere are outraged that, they, that their Ethiopian friends didn't get to experience the wonders of a decade-long civil war. So, we have that. The UN is now trying to broker a, a new Black Sea deal uh, between Russia and Ukraine. If you'll remember, the Black Sea agreement was the agreement between Russia and Ukraine 
to allow or where the Russians would allow the Ukrainian grain ships to leave port, they would go to Turkey, they would be checked, and this would apply to Russian ships as well. They would both dock in Turkey and be checked by Turkish uh, customs officials before being let out to the wider world. So this enabled the aversion of the food crisis that everyone was afraid of when the war first broke out. So now that deal is gone, the Russians have pulled out because of the Ukrainian drone attack on their ships based in Sevastopol. And now the UN is trying to negotiate another Black Sea deal between Russia and Ukraine because, well, if they don't, people are going to starve by the millions, tens of millions even. So that's what's going on here. And last but not least, while we're still talking about Africa, France has ended its Operation Barcane which was their anti-jihadist war in western and parts of central africa um we we saw i i suppose looking back we saw the beginning of this uh end of the operation back when they pulled out of mali so now they've formally ended this and hopefully america can do something similar with our war on terrorism although we will see but that is the rapid fire news and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start by talking about the G20 meeting in Bali, Indonesia. So the G20 convened, and this is a meeting between uh, the US, China, Russia, India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Canada, Argentina, France, Germany, the UK, Indonesia, South Africa, Mexico, Australia, Italy, Turkey, South Korea, the EU, and Japan. Uh, thus it's uh, 20 countries, thus it's named the G20. So they met in Indonesia this time, because Indonesia has the presidency of the group for this uh, meeting. So these are these are the major economies from around the world. They got together, as they do annually. Except this time around, there was much talk of the Biden meeting with Xi. Uh, namely, that they were meeting face-to-face for the first time. And upon hearing that they were going to do that, my first reaction to this was, oh boy, Biden's going to meet with Xi Jinping today. Ah, uh, yes. Precisely what we needed. Another humiliation on the world stage. At least that's what I expected was going to happen. Thankfully, it did not turn out that way. We, we all remember what happened in Alaska. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. That was, that was painful. That was painful. And on our own soil, of all things, the nerve. <laughs> but... The media hype surrounding this meeting, which completely eclipsed the fact that there was a G20 meeting at all, you know, if you just read the headlines, you'd think that this was just the U.S. and China meeting and not actually the the meeting between some of the largest countries and economies on the planet, the G20. You'd think this was the U.S.-China summit, the Sino-American summit instead of the G20 summit. But... The media hype surrounding this was all about Sino-American tensions running high over the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But after watching their opening statements, because that's all we were able to see before they ushered the cameraman out of the room, we basically got the opposite of what you'd think this event was all about based off the mainstream reporting. It was instead... Again, and this is just going off their opening statements that we could see. It was mutual statements between the two powers, emphasizing the importance of China and America getting along moving forward. 
which in I, I suppose it's a good thing, assuming both sides mean what they say, but only time is going to show us that. Now, I think the Chinese mean what they say. When it comes to their region, they're very serious about that. But does America mean what it says? Do our delegates speak with clarity and sincerity? That's the real question here. Because Southeast Asia, Taiwan, Uyghurs, Hong Kong, this is an area important to China. They're going to tell us what they think. But we have things like strategic ambiguity. So we're not exactly going to tell them exactly what we think. And that leaves all kinds of room for misunderstanding. Uh, and if Biden does say what we all expect America's going to do, which is that America's dedicated to defending Taiwan from China, because there's no other possible country we could be defending them from, well, that that's not going to do any good for U.S.-China relations at all. So we will see if the two sides meant what they said about this, this getting along, and that America and China have responsibilities, and that the world is watching and hoping that these two are going to get along. Now, I have a very easy solution for these tensions, and that's to go home. And I mean it, I mean it, if we went home, Taiwan isn't our issue, the Uyghurs aren't our issue, Hong Kong's not our issue, the Indo-Pacific region isn't our issue. No, no, that's our issue if we just go home, and we benefit more from doing so. That That's the, the easy fix, you know, just uh, just reminding everybody, you know, isolationism, one, one true ideology, let's go. So I'll just throw that in there. But... For the people who would prefer we remain involved, well, we'll see if the two sides meant what they said, or if we're just going to continue escalating and escalating and escalating until we get some sort of conflict. No, I'm not entirely sure. I, I Actually, I can guarantee you that the American delegation isn't going to denounce Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and the Chinese aren't going to acknowledge the Uyghur situation. Or the Hong Kong situation. So how much progress is actually going to be made? We will see. But that's the China-America aspect of the G20 summit. Uh, but again, this summit was not just about U.S.-China relations. There was lots of talk of Western relations with Russia. And this came primarily from the president of the G20 for this year, which is Indonesia. Their president, Yoko Widodo. He wanted the West, he wanted to emphasize the need for the West to be able to speak with Putin and speak with Russia instead of constantly denigrating and attacking them and trying to demonize them on the world stage. He basically drew a line where the, you might be able to do that on the G7, where you're all together and you're all in on the same policy, but this is the G20. We can't do that for you because we all have our own interests that aren't in alignment that aren't in alignment with America that aren't in alignment with Europe so he tried to lay that down there was also strong messaging from uh, again Jaco Widodo the president of Indonesia that the members of the bloc should not try to explicitly condemn Russia for their war in Ukraine something which was also expected of Biden and the European leaders to do at this summit so you have a real attempt at sort of a detente and de-escalation coming from in coming from Indonesia, backed up by the other powers in the G20, the ones that aren't a part of the G7. And then you had the G7 countries, plus a few, essentially saying, 
we want to take a hard line against Russia. You all need to take a hard line against Russia. And there was a, a split there. So that was also an important takeaway from the G20 summit, not just the Biden meeting with Xi Jinping. But uh, speaking of the U.S. and Biden, we're going to talk now about the U.S. midterm elections. So, last Tuesday, America went to the polls to vote in the midterm elections to decide the House, the Senate, and a number of governors' races. This was uh, an election that Republicans were heavily, very, very heavily expected to super-duper perform in. There was talk not just of a red wave, but of a red tsunami. And then, when we get to the election day, things got real interesting. I'll just say that much. Because, as it stands, the Senate hasn't changed, I think. The Republicans are still projected to take the House, I think. And the governor's race in Arizona is pretty close, I think. And the reason I keep saying, I think, is because the votes are still being counted. Yes, 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 yes. Even now, a whole week after Election Day, ballots are still being counted. And at first I was speechless. Well, I was speechless in 2020. Like, Trump said that they would cheat. But the watching them actually do it just left a really sour taste in my mouth. And watching them do it again was uh, just almost as bad, but I, I expected as much this time around. Still a very salty feeling. But it's... I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. I mean, I'll admit, during this whole affair, while observing these shenanigans where people are... These counties that have just a few tens of thousands of votes to count, taking weeks and weeks and weeks, where states that had literal millions of votes to count went through them on election day is infuriating. And again, uh, I will admit that I have on more than one occasion referred to the people counting the votes as illiterate and slow. And I'm not just talking about their speed, if you catch my meaning. So that, that's my, uh, my mini rage against this machine. And honestly, this whole thing is a mess, to say the least. For starters, we've gotten to a point in this country where we, we just we just count ballots for days and, and weeks after the election. Like, that's just normal now. It's not, but we do it. And if I were to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing that, I'm lambasted as the guy who doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's like, so we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna count the ballots days for days and days and weeks and months because there's bound to be recounts of some of these elections. Georgia has a, a runoff. We'll see if those results are in on the election day then. Or if we're still waiting for weeks after that runoff election happens to find out what the results are. It's it's funny business. A whole lot of funny business, except it's not funny. It's just the business of cheating. I mean, honestly, we... Instead of playing the, the usual game that we've been playing for the last 270-something years, where we count the ballots to see who won the election, instead of playing that game, we're now playing the game where we, we count ballots until the Democrat wins. That's the game we're playing now. And again, if you, I'm pretty salty about all this. So per perhaps 
and you voted Democrat and this is good for you. I'm still salty. <laughs> I'm still upset. But, hey, it is what it is, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, why are we counting ballots after Election Day? Uh, who knows? Who knows? And, uh, again, it's a whole bunch of tomfoolery. Like, on top of the fact that we're counting ballots after Election Day. On top of the, the midnight ballot dumps. Like what happened in New York, where the Democrat was about to lose in New York. And then the ballots came in in the middle of the night, and the, the vote tally for that... Uh, I forget her name. I believe it was Holton. But it was it was the lady who took over after Andrew Cuomo. She was up for re-election against Lee Zeldin. And in the middle of the night, you see the vote count just spike up by exactly what she needed to win. And suddenly, New York went from being on the verge of having a Republican governor, if you can believe it, to having a Democrat. And I guess they... Uh, I, I, I won't even say that the Democrats want crime. Like, I can say that the party itself apparently wants crime, but I, I can't say that about the Democrat voter. And I'll get into why in a minute, but you, you have f goofy things <laughs> like that. I mean, we have we have midnight ballot dumps. We have vote tallies going on for days. And they're still talking about, and this is on Thursday, Arizona's like, it may take weeks to get the results. Weeks? We. What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, weeks? We've been doing this for how many years? And we've been able to have the results in on election day for over 270 years. Why are we all of a sudden now having problems? Trump was right. We need same-day voting, paper ballots, none of these tabulation machines, which always have issues every time we have an election. Get those up out of here. Paper ballots, voter ID, so we can verify you. We need clean voter rolls. And all, and there's limited early voting. I, I, personally, I'm of the opinion that early voting itself is also unconstitutional, just as voting after election day. But we can, we I guess we can make exceptions for military overseas people who are in temporary residence outside the country, and people who are physically disabled. We we can make those exceptions. But those should be the exception, not the rule. What we have now is tomfoolery where it's i mean it's it's not normal this isn't normal <laughs> I'm, I'm still struggling to piece together my thoughts on this it is definitely not normal to still be talking about who's projected to win a race after the election where said race was to be decided it's not normal that's not normal i see all these YouTube videos popping up, and they, they've been all over the election coverage. But that, that's that's not normal. We're not supposed to be counting votes after election day. We're not supposed to still not know who's going to be in these positions after election day. That's that's not normal. And I'm I'm pointing all my fingers at Arizona and Nevada. They have a population of five, and they can't count these ballots. Again... I have openly called these people illiterate and slow, and I mean it as a genuine insult, but goodness, I mean, the last time we had an election, right, we had record numbers of dead people voting for the living. But this year, we upped the ante, 
now we have living people voting for the dead. I'm not joking. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, check this out. Check this out. Check this out. Tony DeLuca, a house rep of Pennsylvania. Simon Silva, a candidate for a city attorney in Chula Vista, California. Charles Beasley, a candidate for Bibb County Commission in Alabama. Barbara Cooper, a member of the Tennessee House of Reps. You know what all these people have in common? All of them were deceased before the election. And yet, all of them were, one, not automatically disqualified over that fact. And two, all of them won their races. It's, it's insanity. It is insanity. This is, this is a new level of weird. This is, this ain't it. This, this just ain't it. We're electing dead people, folks. We are electing dead people. It, it's one thing to have the dead vote. It's one thing to have the dead win the election. What, what are we doing? What are we doing? I, I'm, I'm almost speechless. I have, I've managed to put this much into writing. But, but I'm speechless. What am, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm laughing, but it's not funny. What am I supposed to say to this? Uh, goodness. Uh, uh, we have, uh, I guess, a, a couple of good things that came out of this was that the Congressional Freedom Caucus has essentially issued an ultimatum to the uh, projected House Speaker, which is Kevin McCarthy. Again, it's not normal that we we should still not know who the speaker is because the the remaining seats haven't been decided yet because we're still counting the votes but the congressional freedom caucus has, has sent an ultimatum to mccarthy kevin mccarthy where he has to agree to them being able to put his speakership up for a vote on the house floor anytime that they want or else they won't vote for him to be speaker in the first place and this has drawn some very curious uh, parallels to the the forced the vote movement that happened, I believe, either a year or two years ago. It had to have been a year ago. Uh, well, no, 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 no. It, it was two years ago because uh, Nancy was uh, not the speaker yet. She needed the House progressives to vote for her to be speaker. So this was definitely two years ago. And people on the left, namely Jimmy Dore and those on his show frequently, we're advocating, hey, the progressives should use their leverage to force a vote on Medicare for All. And that that's a standard left-wing position. Hey, healthcare, we need healthcare, and we need single-payer healthcare. That's the government being the single healthcare for the country. They said, Nancy can't become the speaker without your votes, so you should come together and use the leverage that you have to force a vote on the House floor in exchange for your vote. Uh, uh, and this is again for Medicare for All. And the main the main goal that at least Jimmy outlined was that either you vote with it and we see that you're actually down with the cause of progressivism or you vote against it and we know who to get rid of. Now, whether or not they would have been successful in getting rid of those politicians is a, a different story, but you can see the strategy as a from a uh, as a voter. You tell your representative to use their leverage so that you can see who's on board with your with your ideas and who's against your ideas and you can act accordingly That's a good plan. He was stomped on 
by, ironically enough, other members of the left for saying it wasn't going to work and that it wasn't the right time, that they needed strategy and that you can't force them to do this. And so now it's interesting that we're in this position where the Republicans, the, the Freedom Caucus, is doing to Kevin McCarthy what Jimmy Dore was advocating that the Progressive Caucus do to Nancy Pelosi. It's a very interesting parallel, and they're, <laughs> they're salty about it. Uh, Jimmy's great to watch. Good source of political news, I'll say that. But that's what's going on in the, the House for the time being. Uh, again, this is all assuming that Kevin McCarthy's even going to be the Speaker to begin with. But the votes haven't finished being tallied, so we could wake up tomorrow and the Democrats have the majority. And all, all the races just end up flipping to the Democrat. You know, uh, but hopefully, hopefully something good can come from this leverage on our projected speaker, perhaps forcing him to take a harder stance against funding the Ukraine war, or perhaps it'll be used to make him give even more money to finance Taiwan. I, I mean, Ukraine, you know, but back to my point about how I can't really blame the Democrats, the Democrat voter for what's happening. I can't. I mean, you'll if you'll dig even moderately deep enough, you'll start to see some people doing sort of reflections on what the midterms and what they mean and where the GOP should go moving forward. There's been efforts to push the GOP away from Trump and towards DeSantis, which I believe myself is an exercise in wasted time. But there have been good movements, which is pushing the GOP away from McConnell and people like that, and even pushing them away from McCarthy towards some new leadership, which hopefully will result in better people, or either that or we end up with no names who are even worse. But it's better to take the chance than to keep these people in power. But you've had ref reflections and sort of people trying to piece together and deduce what happened on election night, saying that the red wave didn't happen. And then why were the expectations so much higher than what we actually got? And none of them want to address the cheating. None of them want to address the elephant in the room, which is that it's a week after the election and we're still counting ballots. None of them want to address that when they're making these analyses based on how people voted. If you're, you can't come to a solid conclusion about the election... If you don't acknowledge the cheating, like I can't blame the Democrat voter for what happened precisely because the vote tallies are flubbed. The vote tallies are compromised. So how, how am I going to blame the Democrat, the Democrat voter for these people who get into power from these, these midnight ballot dumps, these people who get into power from election week that goes on for days and days and weeks and weeks. How am I supposed to? Why would I blame the Democrat voter? Why would I say things like uh, what's being said now? They, I guess they, they want the crime. I guess they want these policies that are destroying them in their communities. Or America's a really divided nation. We have a, a hung Congress, and that's sort of a parallel to a hung jury, where you, there's no real decision. It's a 50-50, which is a situation that happens rarely when we don't have uh, an odd number of judges, but you get a Supreme Court decision. So people are saying we have a, a hung Congress, which is that we're split 50-50 in both the House and the Senate, essentially, and that red states just got redder and then blue states just got bluer, and that's just that. 
but none of those analyses account for the very transparent cheating that's going on right now. Now, like, again, why are we counting ballots a week after the election? We should be done by now. It's been brought up multiple times that Florida counted uh, over, like, six or seven million ballots on election day, but Maricopa County can't count a few tens of thousands in Arizona? How is this possible? Why are we still having issues in these same counties? And the fact that they don't take into account what's going on here, while trying to make reason-based analysis, you can't have a reason-based analysis if you're not taking into account all the factors in front of you. They, they won't acknowledge the cheating, so they don't factor in the cheating to their, uh, their assumptions and their conclusions. Which, by default, considering that there was cheating, heavy cheating, their, their reflections, their conclusions are going to be off. So far off. Why would we blame the Democrat voter for the cheating being done by the Democrat Party? And it is, in my opinion, spending a week reflecting on all this, that the people counting the votes are truly, truly the problem in our society right now. Because they're doing these funny, these games with the elections. And what that does is it turns the Republicans against the Democrats. Because the cheating largely goes one way, which is toward the Democrats. The Republican voter looks at the results, which have been flubbed by these, the endless counting of ballots in favor of the Democrat. And he goes, hmm, I guess the Democrats are really a problem in this country. They're, they they like crime. They they like violence. They They like... Being in an energy crisis, they don't like domestic production. They, they, they like. They must like five dollars a gallon. When we all know that's not true, we all know that's not true. But because people won't acknowledge the cheating, they draw conclusions like that. And then, in response to these accusations, the Democrat will go, "You're just upset that you didn't win. You're just upset that the Democrat won the election. You, you really, mu- you really are uh, against democracy. You really are." A, a fascist, and you you really do hate democracy, and we're, we really are battling for the soul of this nation, and what Joe Biden said about the, the MAGA Republicans must be true. If you're going to be extremist about this and uh, not honor the vote, it cre- this madness in the counting of these ballots creates unnecessary division in this country, which could just be solved by stopping the counting at midnight. On election day, like we used to do, before it became the trendy, before it became trendy to just count ballots after election day. Conveniently, this was uh, when Trump was president. And we're just, we're just going to count the ballot until the Democrat wins, and oh, would you look at that, Joe Biden has 81 million votes. Do we really believe that Joe Biden outperformed Obama? I don't. Perhaps he could have outperformed Hillary Clinton, but Obama? No. But when you have these inaccurate tallies due to the cheating, which essentially, again, we have dead people voting. We have dead people winning the elections. We have tabulators that uh, just record a Republican vote for the Democrat. We have we have midnight ballot dumps of hundreds of thousands of votes, all for the Democrat and none for the Republican. We have the counting of the ballots, the same ballot over and over and over again. We have... Republican ballots getting uh, 
misallocated into boxes of ballots that were already counted without actually counting the Republican ballot. So those those counts just those ballots of those votes just don't get counted because they're, they're marked as being counted, even though they're not. So those are votes taken away from the Republicans. But all the Democrat votes get counted. The cheating being biased in favor of the Democrat creates unnecessary divisions in our society. We, we don't even know what the people want. Well, we can. They want their gas prices to come down. They want somebody to do something about inflation. They want health care. We know these things. They want America to look good, reasonably good on the, the world stage. Biden hasn't promised any of that. And some of them want student debt forgiveness. Biden said he was going to do it. And then the Supreme Court struck it down because it was unconstitutional. Something which the people who put that policy into motion should have already known was going to happen. If it was just the executive and not Congress passing a bill. You get these unnecessary divisions between the voter bases due to inaccurate counts of the vote. That only, well I wouldn't say only, but for most of the time they favor the Democrat. So again you get the Republican accusing the Democrat voter of all these these bad things that they, they just must want for this country. And the Democrat, who didn't vote for this, says, huh, I guess you really don't like democracy. If you're not going to honor the vote to, for two elections in a row, if you're going to, are you going to do another January 6th? Like, the, the funny business going on with the counting creates unnecessary division that really doesn't need to exist. It does not need to exist if we just counted the ballots properly and ended the counting on election day. It's not hard. It's not. It's it's simple. It's very easy. We know that it's easy and simple because we've been doing it for 270 years. If we could get this right when people were riding on horseback, what is the excuse for not getting it right now? It's insane. But I'll digress. That's my my eight cents on the situation with the U.S. elections, and we'll end this podcast by talking about Italy getting tough on immigration. Uh, let's get right into this. So we have Italy, and they're making some major changes to their immigration policy, which is already making waves across Europe. They begin cracking down on illegal. Uh, they begin cracking down on illegal immigration, namely on the migrants coming from North Africa and the Middle East. They come by boat because Italy sort of juts out. If you look at a map of Europe and Northern Africa, you'll see Italy juts out. Just like Greece does. So, people moving from North Africa, it's easier to take a shorter journey by sea to Italy and then go by land to the west of the EU. Or go from, say, Libya or Egypt or Syria to get to Greece by sea and then go everywhere else by land. At least that was until they started building border walls. Uh, And Italy has gotten pretty fed up with all the immigrants coming in and from a lot of other things that their previous government was doing. And so one of their first major changes here has been to deny port entry to ships carrying migrants. Interestingly enough, though, and this is not quite what I was expecting, but I, I suppose it might actually work, as sinister as some people might believe it to be. Because they're not just turning the boats around. They're taking the boats they're allowing women, children, and sickly men to disembark. 
but then they turn away the rest of the, they turn away the rest of the healthy men forcing them to dock elsewhere and so what this may be able to do is speed up the assimilation of these migrants because if you have more women than men well right that's plenty of marriage prospects for the men and potentially higher birth rates for Italy the the women aren't as aren't nearly as prone to violence as a lot of the men can be so you're you're shooting two birds with one stone here you're partially addressing fertility although again that'll that'll remain to be seen but that's a possibility you're partially addressing fertility by bringing in children and women to the country and you're also dealing with violent crime issue by not allowing the adult males in and the, the assimilation process can be sped up because the children aren't as deeply rooted into their own cultures from where they come from so as they grow up they're going to grow up italian they're going to grow up italian instead of uh syrian iraqi they're instead of palestinian or jordan jordanese lebanese egyptian uh algerian they're going to grow up italian instead of their previous culture that they came from so you're going to speed up the assimilation process you're going to help deal with italy's population issue and pop their demographic issue by literally importing kids and women and simultaneously deal with the violent crime that is so heavily associated with the adult males that are being drawn into the country which make up the largest demographic of people trying to get into europe from the outside it's a again it's two bird two birds with one stone and you know maybe you think that's a diabolical i think it's ingenious <laughs> but it is what it is so they're allowing the women the children and the sickly men to disembark and then they're turning away the healthy men and forcing them to dock elsewhere one of these places ha that these ships have been forced to dock is france france has been uh well they haven't have been they have begun heavily criticizing the italian government for these actions namely because the french while they advocate mass migration they don't really like it in their country they and uh, to be honest they kind of have enough i mean they it, it took the be they got a, it took a beheading uh back in i believe it was 2020 there was a beheading that happened and they started cracking down on muslims really hard so france is already sort of at a tipping point with regards to the migrants and the issue of islam versus french civilization so they really don't want more of these migrants and yet they've been forced to take these ships because the italians won't so the french government has begun criticizing the italian government for these actions uh, and they're essentially causing they're, they're essentially accusing italy of violating every law under the book they're accusing italy of violating eu law they're accusing italy of violating un law they're even accusing italy of violating the geneva conventions by refusing to accept these uh, asylum seekers essentially something which i'll say reaffirms some of my observations in the past that i spoke about many 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 months ago where i said that international law only really applies to those who choose to follow it because there's no enforcement mechanism and i said this in reference to the great powers 
if China wants to do something that the world doesn't like, what's the world going to do about China? If America invades countries in the Middle East, what's the world going to do about it? Russia invaded Ukraine, got hit with the mother of all sanctions, they're still there. What's international law going to do about it? Arabia invades Yemen. Israel invades Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, and Iran on a, a daily basis. Who's going to stop them? Where's the enforcement mechanism? There is none. Which is why I said that these international laws only apply to those who choose to follow them. The great powers have the, the greatest ability to flaunt these laws, but it also applies to other countries as well, on, on a much more limited way, because if America or Russia decides to say, hey, cut that out, or we'll intervene here against you, well, there's your enforcement mechanism. But that's not really a mechanism, that's just a choice made by the great powers. Who checks the great powers? There's no one to check the great powers. So, again, these the international law only applies to those who choose to follow it. And l let's say that Italy is violating these international laws. Who's going to stop them? The UN? With what army? The EU? With what army? <laughs> the US? And deliberately lose NATO? Oh wow, that that actually pretty pretty good, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, that'd be that'd be terrible to lose a, a solid NATO ally like that. That'd be terrible. <laughs> uh, the U.S. might be able to stop them if we chose to do so, but we currently don't want to. Is France going to stop them? No. Where's the enforcement mechanism for these international laws? I'll ask it again. And what realistically can said mechanism do to stop Italy, or really any other country for that matter, from doing whatever they want? And that's a question that we can begin to ask ourselves as we move into this new era. Maybe something will come along to replace the UN, something with an enforcement mechanism. Maybe the UN will become more like the the League of Nations, where it's really just a, it's not exactly a binding treaty as much as it is just an agreement between nations to work out their problems through diplomacy instead of war. Who knows where things will go in this multipolar era? I'd imagine that the international institutions we have available today will have to give way and change in accordance with that change in the, the global power map as out of necessity to reflect the new great powers and their spheres of influence. How that change will come about, I'm not sure. Whether it'll come about peacefully or through force, again, I'm not sure. Perhaps something akin to what the BRICS is doing to NATO and the G7. Well, not, not NATO, but the G7, BRICS is in the military alliance. But countries are joining the BRICS instead of wanting to join the G7 or the G20. That, that's sort of a, a usurpation of the existing international system. So perhaps something similar may happen to the UN. Uh, again, I'm just speculating here. But... What can these mechanisms do to stop countries that choose to do whatever they want? Because the UN can't. Will the UN's replacement, if that happens, will it be able to stop countries? Like a, like a concert of Europe type of thing in the 19th century? I don't know. But what I do know is that Italy's not going to stop.
it is not going to stop. But back to the topic at hand, this game of hot potato with illegal immigrants combined with the mutual animosity between Emmanuel Macron and Georgia Maloney has really sparked a clash between France and Italy. France has increased its border checks. They've canceled a program where around 3,000 migrants were to be transferred out of Italy and into other EU states. The Italians have protested that France has increased its border detail along its border with Italy, and only Italy, by about 500 officers. And I've noticed that migrants and immigration as a whole is a serious, serious point of contention between the Europeans. Uh, I mean, I've, I've pointed it out before, but looking at how quickly this escalated so fast, yeah, I'm realizing it's, it's a bigger issue than I thought it was. At least that's how it starts to seem. I mean, look at all the countries that have issues with one another because of immigration. The illegal immigration of these migrants. Uh, we have issues between Britain and France, Turkey and Germany, Poland and Belarus, Hungary and the EU, Poland and the EU, Italy and France, and we can now add to the list. Greece and the EU was already on the list. Uh, and Turkey and the EU. If you will remember, back in the day, the Turks essentially got the EU to bribe them to keep the migrants in Turkish territory instead of letting them cross over into the EU. That deal was upended when the Turks uh, got upset by the EU, and then they let the migrants go. And it took a, a Greek and Bulgarian border wall to keep them from crossing over into the EU at least uh, more than they would have done so otherwise. Hungary's had a border wall for ages now. Migration is a serious point of contention for the Europeans. Everyone's fighting over which immigrants are going to go where, but no one wants them. And very few are willing to say that they don't want them. Italy's saying that they don't want them now. Spain is starting to say that they don't want them. Greece and Bulgaria, they, they started to say that they didn't want them a couple years ago. And Hungary and Poland led the charge, saying we don't want them. Uh, Brexit was partially over illegal immigration and enforcing UK sovereignty over their own waters and over their ports. They didn't want to take in these immigrants. Now, ironically enough, they've probably taken more immigrants now post-Brexit than they did when they were still part of the EU. But that probably wouldn't have changed. And now we can say that's a self-inflicted wound. I mean, seriously, they're, they're an island. You shouldn't have an illegal immigration problem. If, and this is why I really don't want America hitching our wagon to other countries, either through alliances or through civilization states. I really don't want America hitching our wagon to other countries. Because look at Britain. They're an island. The only border they have is with Ireland, who is also an, an island I mean, what's I can't speak on the status of the Royal Air Force, but what is the once vaunted Royal Navy doing? I mean, seriously, because these people aren't coming by plane, they're coming by boat. If the Royal Navy can't stop unarmed men in unarmed boats from crossing the English Channel, then the Royal Navy is worthless as an institution. Say I'm wrong. <laughs> Say I'm wrong. 
uh, I'll, I'll digress, but they really don't, they really shouldn't have an illegal immigration problem. They just don't have the geography for that. That This is a self-inflicted wound. They want this, or at least their politicians do. But I'll, again, I'll digress. Everyone's fighting over immigrants. No one wants them, and very few want to say publicly that they don't want them. So, are we, are the migrants going to be the reason that Europe goes back to being Europe? Like, we talk about NATO and the conflicts between NATO members and how the, the war in Ukraine and Turkey's expansionism is really pressing on that. And how I imagine eventually the U.S. sabotage of Nord Stream is going to strain those relations as well. When it becomes public knowledge instead of, you know, assumed correctly, I would say. Are the migrants going to play as big of a role in the dismantling of this Western solidarity as actual real-life war and conflict? Who knows? These are the questions we deal with. And these are the questions... We have to wait and see to answer. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We've gone over a lot. I thank you for sitting through my rant on the U.S. election. Uh, I, I couldn't do the same about Brazil, but I got you covered with America. Don't you worry. Uh, hopefully... Hopefully the world changes over here as well, and change for the better. I, I have no intention of sacrificing my lovely car for an electric vehicle. I, I like gasoline. <laughs> and I, I don't. My tank isn't exactly big, so I, I get really. My car is small, so I get like really good fuel efficiency on that baby. I just need these prices to come down, you know. But alas, the world is changing, and no matter what happens, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.